0: So if you were to come into our home, you would see right on the left is a, uh, a montage of photographs of our family. And so recently, I hung these nine different um, photographs in, in our hallway of our family. And all these pictures are high quality, so they, they weren't just taken by amateurs on iPhones. They were, they were actually taken by uh, professional photographers with real cameras and they did a great job of capturing the personality um, of our family and after we chose the nine different photos we placed each one of them into a frame and then we hung those frames on the wall now my question is is why did we put those photographs in a frame why not just tape them to the wall it certainly would have been easier it certainly would have been cheaper but we put them in a frame The reason we did, for starters, is that a good frame preserves the photograph, right? I don't know if you've met our kids. Those photographs wouldn't last a moment um, just hanging on the wall, right? See, when it's placed behind the glass in the frame, it keeps them from getting crumpled or bent. And it actually keeps it free from dust and all those little fingerprints. And in its frame, the picture is protected and preserved. Also, a good frame helps display the picture, doesn't it? Instead of being stuck in a digital photo drive somewhere or in the cloud, or if you're old school, in a photo album. You remember photo albums? That used to be where we put photos. It puts photographs on display. It, right? It's not just down below uh, eye level. You actually put it up above to where when you walk in, you just, you're naturally kind of drawn to it. And when you're putting it in a frame, you think strategically. Andy and I looked at the wall and said, okay, how do we want to center it? Where do we want to put it? You don't hide frames or put them below eye level. No, you purposely place them where the photographs can be seen and enjoyed. And finally, a good frame accents the picture, right? The point is not to draw, the point of the frame is not to draw attention to the frame, although it's nice to have good frames. The point of the frame is what? The picture in the frame. And if it's a good frame, it draws your eyes to the photograph inside. The frame And it sets it apart. It gives it a border So you go, look, there's something here for me to see. The frame isn't what's memorable. The photograph inside is what's memorable. That's what you're supposed to talk about. That's what your eyes are supposed to be drawn to see. And what I want us to see over this series is that good theology is like a good frame. See, when doctrine is done well... The focus isn't on the doctrine itself, but on who God is and what he's done for us. In other words, all doctrine should lead to doxology. Doctrine is right thinking about God. Doxology is worship about God. So truth about God, this this right doctrine is meant to lead us to proper worship of God. This morning we come to the second sermon in our Advent series called Christmas and the Doctrines of Grace. If you were with us, last week we talked about total depravity. About how man is broken beyond help. And today we're going to cover the second term of doctrine, unconditional election. And in the weeks to come we'll look at the perfect atonement. God's irresistible grace and the perseverance of the saints. And all of these doctrines provide a framework for us to marvel and look at, to draw our attention to the grace of God to us in Christ Jesus. Because really, that's what Christmas and Advent is all about. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 1? But as Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, don't miss this, for he will save his people from their sins. It's the whole point of Christmas is that God has come to us in the flesh to be God with us and God for us to save us from our sins. And I hope this Advent is not to get distracted by the frame, this doctrinal frame to the point where we miss the image of Christ saving us. But each of these doctrines that we're looking at is meant to help preserve and protect that image. It's meant to display and highlight the beauty of the Christmas miracle that God in Christ has come to save sinners like you and me. And so this morning we come to the doctrine of unconditional election. And just like last week, here's going to be our our, our movements. We're going to define unconditional election so that we know what we're talking about. Then we're going to defend it from scripture. Scripture after scripture after scripture. Most of my sermon text today is just scripture. And finally, we want to apply it to our lives. Define, defend, and apply So just like last week, let's begin with a working definition of what we mean by unconditional election. We'll have it there for you on the screens. So unconditional election, put on your thinking caps here, refers to God's sovereign choice in eternity past to save sinners in Christ Jesus entirely according to his own will and purposes. Not based on any foreseen actions or conditions that man Must accomplish beforehand. I know that's a lot to take in for for this brief moment, but we're going to walk through each point of this definition. So, unconditional election just refers to God's sovereign choice in eternity past to save sinners in Christ Jesus entirely according to his own will and purposes. Not based on any foreseen actions or conditions that man must accomplish beforehand. So in other words, here's what the doctrine of election is saying. Is that God, before the foundation of the world, before there was anything, chose certain individuals from among what would become this fallen race of humanity to be the recipients of God's undeserved grace. And let me just, at the beginning, tell you this. Pretty much all Christians, to one degree or another, believe that God has chosen fallen members of humanity to be the recipients of God's undeserved grace. Where, where Christians disagree on is on what basis does God choose? Because you can't really get around the, the biblical text over and over, we're going to show you later, where God says he chose, he chose, he chose, he chose, he chose. So the question is, he chose on the basis of what? What did God choose from? Did God choose on some foreseen action or response of the individual to the gospel? Or does God sovereignly and solely choose based according to his own will and purposes? The former, this one here where God is choosing based on our choices, is called conditional election. Meaning God's decision is based on a Condition. You or I choosing God. You see that? There's a condition that God has to choose upon. Unconditional election means there's nothing that God is is selecting uh, uh, based on except his own choice. His choice is unconditioned. There's nothing um, that he's waiting on to decide who he's going to choose to be the recipient of his grace. So here's how conditional election goes. Yes, God chooses And yes, it's before the foundation of the world, but because God is all-knowing, God looks down through the corridor and hall of history because he's omniscient, he can do that. You and I can't do that, but God can. And because he knows in advance who is going to one day say yes to the offer offer of the gospel and because he knows who will say no to the offer of the gospel with that information god makes his choice based on that that's the condition god is looking through the halls of history and going who will say yes to the gospel if if this person will say yes i'll choose them if this person says no i won't choose them it's conditioned do you see that in other words the condition for salvation Is a person's choice to believe in the gospel and place their faith in Christ. And on the basis of God's knowledge of that future event of who will and will not decide, God makes his choice. In conditional election, God's choice is based on our choice. God chooses us because one day we will choose him. That's conditional election. In unconditional election... God chooses to sovereignly extend his grace to whomever he he wills, exclusively at the discretion of his own will for his self-determined purposes. In unconditional election, God's choice is based on his will, and God chooses us simply because he decides to, period. There's no conditions that are forcing God's hand now as we think about unconditional election you can't forget what we talked about last week total depravity right because one of them logically follows the other here's where we looked at last week total depravity as a result of the fall every part and faculty of man soul and body mind and heart will and emotions have been corrupted by sin and therefore each person is born enslaved to sin, spiritually dead in their sin, and therefore totally incapable of responding to God and faith apart from divine intervention. That's total depravity. And we went scripture after scripture after scripture showing that man is totally depraved. I'll give you a couple reminders. Remember that because of the fall... We looked at the fact that our minds are unable to understand the things of God. So because of the sin in the garden, everyone born after that, their minds are broken in a way that they don't understand spiritual things. 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able. Not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So in our own natural state, the things of God, the spiritual things, we are unable to understand them because your mind is broken. Not only that, but your hearts are deceitful and desperately sick. Remember Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So you might be thinking, well, my mind might be broken, but my heart, oh, Pastor, if you just knew my heart, it's so pure. No, it's it's not. It's deceitful. Like saying that is just your heart lying to yourself. It's deceitful and it's desperately sick. And if that weren't enough, here's how the Bible describes you before you come to Christ. Ephesians 2. And you were dead. Underline that in your Bible. Dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air, who is Satan by the way the spirit that is now at work in the sons and daughters of disobedience, that's us, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now I'll spare us from recapping the entire sermon from last week. But we walked through scripture after scripture to show that left to our own, no one chooses God. We're just incapable of doing it. Our minds are broken, our hearts are broken, and we're just so busy following the pattern of this world, following the, the, the prince of the power of this air, following the desires of the flesh. We're incapable of discerning and understanding the gospel. And even if we did, even if your mind had a moment of clarity, the problem is is your heart has no desire for God. And none of that matters anyway because you're dead. You're dead. And guess what? Dead people don't do anything. You know why? Because they're dead. They're dead. See, conditional election equates that our fallen situation is more like we're all drowning at sea. You know, just like frantically dog paddling, waiting for someone to throw us a rescue tube. And God knows who will reach out and grab onto that rescue tube when the time comes. And so... God sends rescue boats to those people, right? Some people are so prideful and arrogant. If you send a rescue boat, they'd say, no, I'm good. I'll swim myself out of here. But God looks into the halls of history and says, look, there's some people who will receive my help if I send it to them. And so he sends out these rescue boats to all these people who are drowning and they grab onto that life preserver. The problem with that is the Bible. That's not how the Bible describes us. The Bible doesn't describe us as floundering in the middle of the ocean, desperately dog paddling, waiting for rescue. The Bible describes us as dead at the bottom of the ocean. It doesn't matter if a rescue boat comes by, because you're dead. You're not even floating at the top anymore. You've sunk all the way down. You've already drowned. You don't need a rescue boat. What you need is God to reach down to the bottom of the ocean floor and to pull you up and give you what only he can give you, which is new life. Only God can give you that. See, total depravity makes unconditional election necessary because there is no condition that we could possibly meet before God chooses to save us from our deadness. You, God can't look down the halls of history of, of, of a totally depraved person choosing God because a totally depraved person can't choose God. You see that? The problem is that the condition would never be met if it was conditional election and nobody would be saved. Therefore, it logically necessitates that God chooses us before we choose him. Here's a helpful summary from a book called The Five Points of Calvinism. God could have chosen to save all men For he had the power and authority to do that. Or he could have chosen to save none. For he was under no obligation to show mercy. But he did neither. You know what he's saying right there? God could have chosen to save every single person. That's called universalism. And that's not true. That's a a heterodox uh, doctrine. Or God could have saved nobody. He wasn't under an obligation to save anybody. We're all rebellious and therefore deserving of death and damnation. But instead... He chose to save some and exclude others. His eternal choice of particular sinners for salvation was not based on any foreseen act or response on the part of those selected, but was based solely on his own good pleasure and sovereign will. Thus, election was not determined by or conditioned upon anything that men would do, but resulted entirely from God's self determined purpose. So when I say unconditional election, that's what I'm talking about. Nothing forced God's hand. God didn't choose us because we would choose him. God, based on his own will and purposes, decided whom he would save. That's what we mean. That's the definition of unconditional election. Now let me show you how that comes out from Scripture. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, In Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul begins his letter by reminding us that God is worthy of our adoration and our affection because he has blessed us. Again who's the one blessing us? God is the one blessing us with every spiritual blessing and it's a great reminder that all of doctrine is meant to lead to this kind of devotion. Paul's about to write one of the longest theological statements in the entire Bible. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 14 is one long Greek complex sentence. And he begins by saying, what I'm about to tell you, God is amazing. What God has done for us in Christ is amazing. Doctrine should never stop at the level of the mind, but it should work its way down into our our hearts so that it bursts forth in praise and affection. Now verse 4. Each word here is particularly important even as he God chose us in him before the foundation of the world now why is God to be praised Paul goes into it in verse 4 he says listen he has chosen us in Christ from before the foundation of the world Now this is a good verse that helps back up pretty much all that we talked about in this definition of unconditional election. And there's four sections in this verse. Chose, us, in him, and then before the foundation of the world. First we have the word chose. It's the Greek word eklegomai. And it means to choose. That's what it means. And it means to choose based on preferences or purposes. Did you know that we always do that when we choose things? You know what we choose based on? our choice and preferences, right? We go, this is what I want? That's what it means to choose something, doesn't it? I love that. I love it when the Greek word means exactly what it means in English. The same way we think about choice is exactly what this is. It's not really your choice if it's conditioned on something else, isn't it? It's that other person's choice, right? That's the point. Who chose us? God chose us. Next we have the word us. Who's us? Well, primarily it's these Ephesians. But more broadly, it's all Christians everywhere. Paul's writing a general letter that applies to all Christians. And then we have this phrase, chose us in him. That him there is Jesus. He chose us in Jesus. Now men, you remember our study of union with Christ? In him or in Jesus is Paul's shorthand for union with Christ, which is what it means to be saved. So when we are saved, you are joined to Jesus. We are in him, he is in us. There is this union with Christ so that his life becomes your life. That's what Paul means when he says, I am hid with Christ, that the life of Christ wraps around me in such a way that what is true of him becomes true of me. I'm clothed in his righteousness. His life becomes my life. His death becomes my death. His resurrection beautifully becomes your resurrection. We're able to escape the curse of death simply and beautifully because we are in Christ. We're made alive together with and in Christ. And then you have that phrase, before the foundation of the world. Now this can make your head hurt a little bit. Because now we're getting into things that are beyond our own comprehension. Did you know Paul just described The logical order of God's choice before there was time. We don't even have words to describe time before time. You realize that? Some time, which doesn't even work because time doesn't exist. But some logical prior reality before there was time... Before there was anything but God, God the Father mapped out all of human history creation, the fall, redemption, even recreation, all before any of it ever existed. We could could spend hours unpacking just that reality, the fullness of God's plan from beginning to end. That's beyond the scope of this sermon. But what I want us to see is the phrase that that we're talking about the timing of God's choosing. When, so to speak, did God choose? Before there was anything. It happens prior to you or I, anything we've ever done. Because it happened prior to anything at all, before the foundation of the earth. You know why we don't partner with God in this election? Because we weren't even created yet. God did all of this before the foundation of the world. So if you put just all that together, here's what we have. In eternity past, God chose to save believers through Jesus Christ. No mention of us except that we're chosen not that we do the choosing then paul goes on in verse four god chose us why that we should be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through jesus christ according to what the purpose of his will not our will according to the purpose of his will okay i'm not making this up it's just right there plain as day to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In these short verses, Paul says that we were chosen for a reason. God does not act arbitrarily. He acts always purposefully. And when he decided to choose, his choice was based upon his own purposes and will. And we were chosen to become a holy and transformed people. He's not choosing to save us partially but to save us holistically. So when God chose to save us, he didn't say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna justify them, but leave them to their own sanctification. No, God chose to save us totally. See, we aren't just delivered from drowning at sea, but God takes us into the boat, resuscitates us. We're given medical attention and we are restored. This is the life of sanctification. And Paul even states what guides his decision and choice. Did you see it in verse five? God chose us what? According to the purpose of his will. Did it say God chose us in Christ according to the future decisions of his people? Nope. God chose us in Christ, in his love, he predestined us for adoptions as sons and daughters according to the purpose of his will. Now at this point, let me restate the issue. The question is not, does God choose who he's going to save? Every Christian believes that. That's just plain in scripture. The question is, How? On what decision? And in a minute, you're going to see over and over and over that God chooses who he's going to save. And remember, like I said earlier, all Bible-believing Christians believe in some form of election. Because it's, right, it's hard to get away from it. It's right there in Scripture. The question is whether or not this choosing or electing, this predetermining, is based on a condition in us, meaning that we make the decision to choose God, and then that triggers God's choosing, Or if God's choice is unconditional, untriggered, based solely upon God's sovereign will. Now I think personally, the doctrine of total depravity is enough to slam dunk that one. Because we're unable to choose him, therefore he has to choose us. Simply because the way the Bible describes us as spiritually dead, blind, deaf, depraved, wicked, hostile to God... People who are like that don't suddenly on their own become spiritually alive, enlightened, seeing, hearing, righteous, and endeared to God to make that choice to choose him. But that said, I want to walk through several passages that help us form this doctrine of unconditional election so that we get the full picture. So we're going to start all the way back at the beginning. You remember in Genesis 12 with Abraham. it's, it's, It's always interesting to me people who have an issue with unconditional election have no problem with Abraham, right? Abraham, you know what he's doing before God chooses him? Joshua 24.2 tells us, he's not faithfully worshiping God, even though he's from the line of promise. He and his family are in a pagan city serving foreign gods, Joshua 24.2. And Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates' Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor. And they served other gods. What is Abraham and his family doing? Even though they come from the line of promise, even though they should know better, what are they doing? They're worshiping other gods. And God comes to him despite his false worship and he chose him. Did Abraham choose God? No. God chose Abraham. Remember Moses and Pharaoh and the whole story of the Exodus? Later on, after they've been delivered, Moses asks God, God, show me your glory. And the Lord unbelievably says, yes. Now we've got to do it in a certain way that your face doesn't melt off, but you can see part of my glory. And he declares to him this in Exodus 33. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name The Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Think about that. When Moses asked God, Hey, show me what is so glorious about you, he says, One of the most glorious things about me is this I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy upon whom I will show mercy. Saying, Moses, there's something you need to know about me I am unmoved, nobody moves me. And that's what makes God glorious. Do you know the word glory means heaviness? The the, the Hebrew word glory is kavod. And it just means heavy, weighty. See, light things get moved around, right? Heavy things, you can't move them. That's part of their glory. It's their weight. And God is saying, you don't move me. Nobody moves me. Nobody acts upon me. I don't go around people. You go around me. You know why? Because I'm here. That's part of my glory. I make the decisions around here. See, one of the reasons why I don't think we grasp the concept of unconditional election is because our God is too small. We've shrunken him down. We've taken away some of his glory and going, yeah, God is great, but so am I. I chose him and then he chose me. We've got this great partnership thing working out. That is not the God of the Bible. God says, you want to see my glory? You want to see something heavy? It's me. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. Paul reminds early Christians of the same thing. Romans 9, 15 to 18, he's looking back on this passage. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, don't miss this. It depends not on human will, on exertion, but on God who has mercy. Can we just read that one again? I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And then Paul says, so basically what that means is salvation's not based on human will or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. You see that? For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show you my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, Paul says it again, he has mercy on whomever he wills. And he hardens whomever he wills. What is the determining factor in who God decides to show mercy? Is it human exertion? Is it human will? Nope. It's simply at at God's discretion according to his will. Think about the people of God, the Israelites. Did God choose them because they were this righteous group of people? Or maybe they were impressive and God's like, man, I could really use someone like you on my team. I'm doing this whole thing, this program of redemption, and you look like a good people. Is that why God chose them? Nope. God tells them that. Deuteronomy chapter 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So far, so good. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest people uh, on all the earth but it is because the lord loves you and is keeping an oath that he swore to your forefathers that the lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of pharaoh king of egypt skip now to deuteronomy 9 6 know therefore that the lord your god is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness why for you are a stubborn people you hear that God says, I didn't choose you because you were impressive. I didn't choose you to give you this land and this inheritance because you were such a righteous group of people. I just decided to set my love on you, and that made you the people of God. God tells the people of God the only reason they are his people is because he simply decided to set his heart and love on them. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 10, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heavens of heavens and the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your forefathers and chose their offspring after him, you above all peoples as you are this day. Friends, the only reason we ever become the people of God is because God makes a free and unconditional decision to set and place and lavish his love on you and me. Listen to how the psalmist describes the people of God. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Listen to how the psalmist describes a believer. Psalm 65, 4. Blessed is the one you choose and you bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. Listen to Paul in Romans 11 as he talks about the future of Israel. Romans 11, 1 through 6. Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Paul's trying to teach them about how Jews and Gentiles come together as the one people of God. He says, for I myself is an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets and they've demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. So Paul's going back to the Old Testament, and there's this time in Elijah's life where he's like, God, I'm the only faithful person left. And God's like, no, you're not. But what was God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Paul goes on. So two at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace how did god decide who would be this remnant of israel not on the basis of works they're chosen by grace listen to jesus matthew eleven twenty seven. 27 he says all things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father and no one knows the father except the, fu- the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him the Son chooses to reveal How does Jesus say we, know, we come to know the Father? Anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So if you're here today and you go, I, I know God the Father, guess what is also true of you? God the Son chose to reveal that to you. If you know God the Father, it's because God the Son chose to reveal him to you. We move on to Matthew 22. Jesus is teaching about how the kingdom of God works and he tells a parable about the wedding feast and how the king had sent out many invitations to the wedding feast. Don't miss this one. We pick it up in the middle of the story. But when the king, so there's this party going on, the king comes back to look in at the guests and he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. The king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. So what's going on? So the king sends out all these invitations to his party. So it's a royal feast. And and midway through the party, the king comes out, you know, to rub shoulders with the commoners and to see how the party is going. And he finds a man there not wearing the proper wedding attire. Now at first glance, we think, we always read things based on our culture. We think, well, did the guy not have time to go get a tux? You know, did he not have on, was he wearing shabby clothes? And the king's kind of offended by that? No, 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 that's not what's going on. You see, at this time and in this culture, no one had the proper attire to attend a royal feast. There's no middle class. It's like you've got poor people and then you've got royalty. And so when the king would invite you to his party, with the invitation came the proper wedding attire. The king provided what you needed to come to the feast. So everyone on the invite list also gets what? The proper attire. But this man is not wearing the proper attire, which means what? He's not on the list. This guy's a wedding crasher. You know, he's, he's a party crasher. He's just showing up because he wants the food and the drink and he wants to celebrate, but he wasn't invited. And he sticks out like a sore thumb. The king knows you, didn't, you weren't invited. Because if you had been invited, you'd have the right attire. And what happens? The king throws him out. Jesus says, many are called, but few are. Are chosen. In other words, many will hear about the party, but few are chosen, invited, and given what they need to attend the party. We jump to the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation. We're given a glimpse into the end of human history. And in chapters 13 and 17, we learn about one of the beasts that lead this rebellion against God and his people. Now listen to how the people are described who worship and follow this beast. All who dwell on earth will worship it. That's the beast. Everyone whose name was not written in the uh, who whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So, if your name is not written in this book of life, you're going to follow the beast. And when was this book written? Before the foundation of the earth. Revelation 17, 8 basically says the same thing. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottom of the split and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. So if your name's not in this book, at the end of human history, you're going to worship and follow Satan and the beast's. Both of these verses are saying that all of humanity can be divided into two categories. A group whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life and those who have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. See, from before the foundation of the world, remember we talked about God choosing us in Christ, before the foundation of the world, every single person's name who would ever come to being was either written in the book or not. Listen to how Luke describes how people respond to the preaching of the gospel. In Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are spending a few days in Antioch and they're preaching and they're evangelizing. And at the end of their time, here's what Luke writes. And when the Gentiles heard this, that's these days of preaching, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. You see that as many as were appointed to eternal life believed who responds to the gospel with belief as many as were appointed chosen elected and who does this choosing god he is the subject of this verb appointed and as many as god appointed believed belief does not precede appointing choosing electing God chooses and elects and appoints and as many not one is lost every single one whom God appoints will believe Romans 9 Romans 9 is the big one this is the one for me when I was wrestling through these doctrines that settled it for me here Paul's using an example of Jacob and Esau and he's teaching on the doctrine of election And he's asking the question, why was Jacob chosen over Esau? You remember when we did Genesis? Jacob was chosen. He was the younger son chosen over the older son, which was a complete reversal of the cultural norm. So why was Jacob chosen over Esau? Paul writes, and not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. Do you remember when we talked about this? There was a wrestling in her womb. Remember that? The the Hebrew says they were clashing against each other. And Rebecca's going, whoa, 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 what's going on? And she sought out uh, Isaac to pray for her and ask the Lord, why is this going on? And Isaac came back with a word from the Lord. And he told them, there's two nations in your womb. And they're fighting against each other. But the younger will serve the other. So this is before they're even born. Paul goes on. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that the, God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the, younger will serve, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Before they were born, before either of them had done anything good or bad. And think about it. This is the God who knows what they will do, right? He knows every detail of their life that is to come. He knows all of it. And yet that's not why Paul says that God chose them. He could have said, and God, knowing what they would do, knowing that Esau would despise the birthright, knowing that eventually Jacob would get some of his life together and be a good forefather, right? Although Jacob's a terrible patriarch, right? Paul doesn't say any of that, does he? He says, no, no, here's why he chose him. God chose Jacob over Esau so that his own purposes of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of God who calls. 1 Peter 2.9 You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Friends, we are a chosen people, and one of the purposes of our chosenness is that we would be a people who proclaim the excellencies of the glory of God. Left to our own, there would be no one proclaiming the excellencies of God. And so God makes a people to do that. John 15, 16, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, you did not choose me. I chose you and appointed that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Jesus says his disciples don't choose him, but he chooses his disciples so that we would bear much fruit. Psalm 115, verse three, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He does all that he pleases. Remember I said we have a view of God that's too small. This is the bigness of God. He does everything that he pleases. That's the definition of God's sovereignty, isn't it? He's not kind of sovereign. He's totally sovereign. He does all that he pleases. And here all means all, including God's redemptive program. So when God is deciding how he's going to work out salvation, guess what? He does all that he pleases. Isaiah fifty-five eleven, So that my word... So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent. If you go back and read all of Isaiah 55, it's a passage about how God is going to restore life to a broken and desolate world. And what does God say? I send out my word and it accomplishes the purpose for which I send it. It is effectual. It does exactly what I intend for it to do. Daniel 4, 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does, this is God, according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? There's no one who can force God's hand. No one. Your choice, my choice, nothing forces, moves God's hand. There is no one in all of creation who can look up at God and say, what have you done? You report to me. No, no, it's the other way around. God does according to his will. Not your will, not my will can stop him. Second Timothy one 9 God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus when? Before the ages began. Paul's saying, in one sense, you were saved before you were even born. How does God determine who to save? Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace before the ages began. And here's one more. Ephesians 2, 4 to 10. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, what did he do? He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, all that Paul just said, is not your own doing. I think when we read this, we like, hush, we like hurry past those words. Let's slow down on those words. And this, salvation, is not your own doing. You had zero part to play. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God, again, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Can I be straight with you? I think the reason, well, let me back up. I think if we're honest, after just verse after verse after verse, we see that the text is pretty straightforward. We see that it says God chose us according to his own will and purposes, not according to anything we've done. I think you see that. We, 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 it's just plain and straightforward. God chooses us not because we choose him, but simply because he decides to choose us according to his own purpose and grace. But I think the reason we then go back... And then try to finagle with the text. And try to go, well, how can I insert my decision in there? I think the reason we do that is because we value personal autonomy and choice above all things. It's the thing we love the most. And we go, I had to have been part of that, right? I, I know that, I know the Bible says I'm totally to pray, But isn't there just this little part of me that would choose him? We just want the tiniest bit of credit. God, 99.999999999% all you, thank you. But isn't there like 000000001 percent that I can get a little participation badge or something? I think we're far more conditioned as Americans by the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of these United States of America than we are shaped by the scriptures. And so we just go, I, I had to play a role. Like, this is the land of the free and the brave. And didn't I do something? And the Bible says, no, it's all of grace or it's nothing at all. And we have to be aware of our biases and our, uh, our subjective reality that keep us from just seeing the plain reading of Scripture. Don't, don't miss me here. That doesn't mean that human freedom and responsibility don't play a role. They do. They're incredibly important. They're incredibly important in the working out of human history. And that's another sermon for another day. But our human freedom and our responsibility do not override the sovereignty of God in all things. I love the way Charles Spurgeon speaks of election. I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I'm sure he chose me before I was born or else he would have never chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I could never find in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. Therefore, I am forced to accept that great biblical doctrine. Friends, the scriptures have spoken and they are clear. God chooses us, not based on anything we do or any choice we've made, but simply because he has decided for reasons that are unknown to us to set his love on us. So we've defined it, we've defended it. Let me give you a few closing applications by way of objections. So you might be sitting there going, objection one, Clint, isn't it unfair For God to choose some for salvation and not others, isn't that unfair? In one sense, yes, but not in the way you might think. See, the fair thing to do—if you want fairness—the fair thing to do would be for God to send every sinner to hell, because every single one of us deserve God's just judgment for sinning against a holy God. Friends, let me—you do not want fairness; you want grace. Choose grace over fairness any day of the week. Because if you got God's justice and fairness, it would be a life of condemnation. R.C. Sproul said this, If God chooses sovereignly to bestow his grace on some sinners and withhold his grace from other sinners, is there any violation of justice in this? And he goes on, he says, Do those who, receive, who do not receive the gift receive something they don't deserve? Meaning, do people who don't get God's grace, are they getting something they don't deserve? The answer is, of course not. If God allows these sinners to perish, is he treating them unjustly? Of course not. They're receiving exactly what they deserve. One group receives grace, the other receives justice. No one receives injustice. And that's an important thing to realize. Those whom God has not lavished his love, set his love on them. They're not receiving injustice. They're receiving justice. They're getting what they deserve. No one gets injustice. So here's the application. If you are a Christian, if, if God has set his love on you, it is because God has decided to set a sovereign and electing a love upon you. Therefore, humble yourself. Don't let that pride puff you up, but humble yourself before the Lord and daily, express your gratitude to him by how you live your life objection number two hey hey pastor doesn't this violate human responsibility answer no it doesn't this is where we have to recognize the mystery of two equal biblical truths first god is completely and totally sovereign over all things including the salvation of man i think we showed that today and second mankind has a responsibility to respond to the gospel And if you're asking, but I don't understand how those two things work together. Here's the the answer. You don't have to understand how they work together in order for the reality to be the fact that they do work together. Do you realize there's so many things happening right now in our world that you don't understand? That doesn't make them untrue. And your understanding of them isn't what makes them work. They work because God has set it up this way. And it's fine to try to figure it out and to work those things out philosophically, but it doesn't make it untrue. We have two equal biblical truths: we are responsible for the things we do, and God is sovereign over everything. They they exist at a level that we can't fully comprehend. Romans nine verses nineteen to twenty one. He anticipates this objection. He says, "You'll say to me, then, why does God still find fault? For who can resist His will?" Here's Paul's answer. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Friends, we are clay. We're clay. The potter molds and shapes at his own will and discretion. How do you apply this to your life? Praise God for his mysterious and incomprehensible ways. Praise God that he chose you. Objection three. If everything is fixed, then why pray? Why evangelize? Why do anything at all? And the answer is simple obedience. Simply because God says to do it. You don't, we really don't need another answer besides that. But the reality is, is you don't know who is chosen or not chosen. And we shouldn't presume to know either. Instead... We're to do what God tells us to do. Pray for the salvation of friends and family and neighbors and to do what God has asked us to do sow the gospel seed liberally. You know the parable of the sower? If I was that guy's boss, I would be livid. Why are you putting seed on the ground? You're wasting seed. You're killing our profit margins. But that's not how God works. He says, throw it everywhere. Get some in the ground, get some in the grass, get some on the sidewalk, out in the street. I don't care where you throw it. Throw the seeds of the gospel everywhere. Let me worry about supply. Let me worry about how it finds root. Let me worry about how people are saved. You do your job. Sow seed liberally. And God has ordained the means by which he works. So prayer and evangelizing are part of God's instrumental means to bring about his sovereign will and purposes. We should praise God that we have a part to play in his redemptive program. Acts 18:9 to 11, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, "Do not be afraid, but go on speaking; do not be silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you for I have what many in the city who are my people." Do you know what he's telling Paul? He's saying there's people yet who aren't believers, but guess what? They're my people. You know why? Because I sovereignly chose them. And he's saying, you go do the work. Go preach and evangelize and let me take care of how they become my people. So how do you apply that to your life? Obey God. Do what he says. Pray. Tell people about Jesus and rest in his sovereign purposes. Do your very best. Trust God for the outcome. I'm going to close with these words from the Josiah Condor hymn. It's called, Tis not that I did choose thee. He says, My Lord, I did not choose you, for that could never be. My heart would still refuse you had you not chosen me. You took the sin that stained me. You cleansed me, made me new. Of old you have ordained me that I should live in you. Let's pray.